We're in a series over Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it's about finding joy in the hard places. The hard places of life. The hard places of hurt. Just hard places. Hard places of adversity. And we're going to look at verses 12 to 26. These verses actually get into the main body of the letter. We've been looking at the introductory remarks the last couple weeks. But these verses that we're going to read take us into uh, just the main body of this amazing letter, this letter of joy. So hear these words from the Word. It's on, it's on page 980 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, call your own. I'd love it if you would just take that copy and make it your own. Philippians 1, 12 to 26. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. And that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now this is the word of the Lord. So George Guthrie is a Bible scholar and he has an excellent commentary on this letter to the Philippians. And Guthrie wrote about a time when he trained house church pastors who uh, resided in a country that was very hostile to Christianity. Now, can you imagine that this gathering here would be unlawful? Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine, you know, putting your family at risk, putting their lives, your life at risk, you know, by daring to come and gather in the worship of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine a situation where we were not allowed to worship publicly, where we could not have a church campus, where you know, we, we had to gather in homes in order to have secret church. Imagine that. Guthrie said that one of the house church leaders in this country that was very hostile to Christianity, she was a woman in her 20s. She was caught and she was imprisoned for Jesus. While there, she started sharing the gospel and she started praying for fellow inmates some of whom were healed. She started working for the improvement of the prison. And after a time, this very dark, dark prison, it just became like a garden, to the degree that the warden came to her and said, we don't understand what you're doing, but we're going to take you to another prison so that you can do the same things there. And Guthrie said that God just used this woman for good. It was in a hard place. But her adversity had become an opportunity. And the way in which this sister endured that period of her life and the broad impact that she had on the church in that country, not only were people in her sphere of influence led to Jesus, but when other workers and servants of Christ heard about her impact, they were emboldened in their own faith to share. And then Guthrie said, it was just amazing. After leaving that post where I had been doing teaching and training, I was profoundly encouraged and emboldened in my own faith, just spending time around this woman of God just made me inspired to be more like Jesus. And then Guthrie said this, boldness is infectious. Boldness is infectious. Now I think that's what we're getting at here when we look at Philippians 1, 12 to 26. This this text is about conditioning our eyes. This text is training us. What's this text doing? It's training us to see adversity as an opportunity. It's a text about living as a model of boldness in the face of oppression. And it's a text that opens us up to the possibilities of the gospel when Jesus is your life. Paul begins Philippians gushing over these believers. He tells them that the Lord Jesus Christ began a good work in them. He says, and he who began a good work, not might complete it or could complete it, he will complete it. He will complete it. He will see you through. And so then he starts praying. He prays that their loving lives might swell to discerning lives, leading to godly lives, and then resulting in God-glorifying lives. What a prayer request. 
Well, in our text today, Paul transitions into the main body. And, and he wants to update them on his condition. But more importantly, he wants to update them on the gospel. See, they know that he's in prison. They know that. But they don't know the significance of the imprisonment. And that's what Paul wants to tell them. I want to tell you the significance of this adversity that has happened to me. And so that kind of leads us to the question that we're going to answer in these verses. And, and it's this. How can the adversity of prison be an opportunity for gospel progress? How can the adversity of prison uh, 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 be an opportunity for gospel progress? Now, let me personalize that for us here. How can our adversity, how can your adversity, anybody in adversity today? Oh, come on, really? This is going to be a short sermon. You know, who, who wants that? How can adversity, I know we're in adversity. We, I, I read your prayer requests. We pray over you. We weep over you. We do. How can, how can adversity become an opportunity for unstoppable gospel progress? How can adversity become an opportunity to make much of Christ? That's, that's what these verses answer. And they, they give us three ways. They talk about letting your example inspire, the example that inspires. Letting your adversity clarify, the adversity that clarifies. And then letting your identity govern. Letting your identity govern. That's, this is how gospel progress happens in hard spaces. So let's just walk through each of these ways, beginning with the example that inspires inspires let your example inspire progress in your adversity verse 12 paul says i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel well, well what has happened well after paul started this church in philippi probably around the year a.d 50 a.d 50 paul traveled to other places and cities god gave the apostle paul this remarkable gift of going into a community unknown. And he would typically locate a synagogue. He was a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee. And, but Philippi didn't have a synagogue. They had what was called a place of prayer. And Paul would go to these places and he would start preaching Christ. And, and it was just a miracle the miracle of God forming a community based on the word of Jesus Christ. And so little cells, little spiritual communities would begin to form all throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul then would leave. He, would, he, he didn't stay very, very long. Ephesus, I think he was there three years. It was about the longest he stayed in one place. But Paul would travel, and then he would leave. Now, remember, these folks, they didn't have the 66 books of the Bible. They didn't have the commentary that's on your cell phone right now. They had Philippians, and they had Jesus, and they had the Holy Spirit, and they had one another. And here we are. It was just amazing. And so Paul would 
plant the churches all across the Roman Empire. That was his thing. That, and he would go back and encourage the churches and so forth. But this is what Paul had been doing. But he was put in prison for the sake of Christ. And you can read about that more in the book of Acts. And he ended up in the city of Rome as a prisoner under house arrest for the sake of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 28, it's about 10 years later, where Paul finds himself incarcerated. And back then, when someone was incarcerated, I mean, it's not like the prison system would provide them food. No way. The captors did not provide them with food or other necessities. If a prisoner were to survive, it was because of a support group. And so when the Philippians heard that Paul was in Rome, Rome, my goodness, this is the capital of the empire. I mean, he's there. He's there under Caesar's guard. This can't be good. They sent a very generous financial gift with one of their own named Epaphroditus. And you can read about him in chapter 4, verse 18. Paul wrote Philippians partly as a, a, a thank you or thank you God for your church in Philippi uh, for your support through them to me. That's exactly how he puts it, by the way. And he gives them an update about how he's doing. They're worried that he's not able to get out and do the work of starting churches and establishing communities. They're concerned that he's stifled and chained up. And then that, that his days are just spent and, you know, he's twiddling his thumbs, waiting for his day in court in a rented house with a long chain attached to a Roman guard. A Roman guard. Not just any old Roman guard. The Praetorian. The imperial guard of Caesar himself. 9,000 highly trained warriors sworn to live and die at Caesar's command. So you put West Point and the Secret Service together. You combine special forces and Navy SEALs. You got the Praetorian. This elite group of trained, intelligent, highly skilled fighters and defenders. They would serve Caesar for up to 12 years, after which many of them would leave their positions uh, highly networked and highly connected with wide open opportunities in business and politics, the Senate, etc. Well, Paul's chained to one of these guards every six hours. Every six hours. Every six hours, a highly trained, physically fit, mentally tough Roman guard is attached to the world's most successful evangelist. It's no contest. One scholar put it this way. The Praetorian would normally see chains on a prisoner as evidence of Caesar's power. These chains were Caesar's chains, demonstrating that Caesar was Lord, binding the prisoner for Caesar to fulfill Caesar's will. But that's not how Paul saw it. In Paul's case, those chains were proof of Christ's power in Paul's life. Those chains were because of Paul's citizenship in Christ. Those chains were there because Paul proclaimed that the true emperor of the universe was not Nero in Rome, but the resurrected Son of God who is making all things new. You imagine one of those guards. His six-hour shift starts, and he has no idea who Paul is. And he's about to find out when he asks Paul the most common question directed at prisoners. Why are you in chains? 
Can't you just hear their conversation? And then that guard gets off duty and goes back to his quarters. Why do they got that little guy locked up back there? I don't get it. He's on trial for sedition. Dangerous? He's not dangerous. I mean, he really believes this news about this Jesus from Israel who was crucified. And he really believes that this Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He really believes that this Jesus is emperor of the universe. He says he's seen him. He says he's seen him. And you know, the way the guy acts and the way he talks and speaks and conducts himself, it's kind of hard to doubt him. And I think that's why Paul says in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, the praetorian, literally, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And the result is a ripple effect. Verse 14 says that Paul's example inspires other believers in Rome to speak up for Christ especially in their not-so-difficult situation. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I think there's something here for us. I mean, sometimes, church, I, you know, I, I'll just talk for myself here. I think that, you know, if I had the ideal circumstances and the ideal situation, then that would give me the ideal opportunity to share Christ, okay? You know, God, if I only had this or if I only had that or if I only had this level or that level, then, then this message could really amplify Christ. Well, it might. It might. But many times the ideal doesn't come along and instead, we end up, at least we feel like we're in chains. See, We're chained to, and you fill in the blank. Okay, And some of us, I bet more than one of us feel chained to something today. And it might be, your, your, maybe you feel like it's your career. Maybe you feel like it's your desk. Maybe it's, you feel like it's poor health. Chemotherapy dialysis and this is hard maybe you feel chained to a relationship chained to a person chained to your past and you say God why am I chained here why am I chained here and as your brother in Christ can I just say can I ask you, invite you to consider this. Your chains are not plan B. Your chains are not plan B. As I was researching for this message today, I came across this quote. Prison was no detour for Paul. Prison was no detour for Paul. Well, while anyone, even Christians, might have been prone to pity Paul, he, he saw a startling opportunity in his imprisonment. The, the worst hardships he knew were often the greatest highways for the gospel. When, when Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me. You know what he's really saying? He's saying, I want you to, I want you to know, brothers, that God can be trusted in your chains. God can be trusted. He will not defraud you. The gospel did not survive his imprisonment. It thrived while he suffered. I mean, let me put it better. It thrived because he suffered. Paul witnessed this really miraculous reality that the more he suffered for Christ, the more people responded to Christ. And he just, he witnessed this, and that's what gave his suffering joy. Because he was saying, oh my goodness, I mean, suffering for you, King Jesus, leads others into your kingdom. Okay, I get it. I get, that's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And because nobody, nobody would naturally respond that way to suffering. Apart from grace, suffering makes, makes us impatient and selfish and despairing. Uh, we withdraw, we, 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 we turn inward, we're less concerned or even aware of the needs of others. We often can't see beyond the darkness we feel. But when the grace of God operates in our hearts and our lives, His grace creates opposite impulses, especially in suffering. So so suffering was not a distraction or an inconvenience or a detour for Paul. It was a breakthrough for what he cared about most, the spread of the gospel and the glory of Jesus. And so God says to us, beloved, you know, like Paul, you're in a situation where I'm bringing people into your world and I'm giving you an opportunity to speak about me and to suffer like me And to show the difference that I make in the life of a hurting person. I want you to be a witness for me. I want your courage to encourage others to share Christ. I want you to conduct yourself with such excellence that your life is contagious. Because boldness is infectious. And that's why I believe Philippians 4, 21 and 22 say these words. If you have your Bibles, just flip over there. It's the close of Philippians. Spoiler alert. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. And Paul says, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel gospel progress in adverse situations but here's what Paul says too We're not even done with this section because Paul says that the gospel makes progress not only in adverse situations but also among obnoxious people <laughs> obnoxious people that's verses 15 to 17 some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, though many prayed for Paul in his chains, and 
others, and some pastors, mind you. <laughs> they piled on Paul. You know, they made, a, they made a sermon illustration about him. They thought Paul did damage to Christianity by getting himself arrested. And they used Paul's adversity to magnify their own ministry. They pompously reflected, isn't it so sad? You know, that one so great a man as Paul has frittered away gospel opportunities simply because he's so inflexible. After all, I and many others have managed to remain at large and preach the gospel. We have to assume that Paul has a deep character flaw that puts him in the path of trouble. My ministry is being blessed while he languishes in prison. Man, well, how does Paul handle that? Is he wounded? Well, he's got feelings like everybody else. But Paul is focused on what matters most. Gospel progress, not personal brand. So verse 18 literally says, ah, for what? For what? Whether in pretense or in truth. As long as Christ is proclaimed, that's what matters. That's remarkable. Paul was so large-hearted, he, he could tolerate the, the wrong motives of others. His question was not, is what's happening to me fair? Rather, it's, is what's happening to me advancing the gospel? That's what matters most. And Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. Because joy is not the self-satisfied delight that everything is going our way. Joy is the settled peace that comes from making the gospel the focus of my life. For Paul, the gospel mattered because Christ mattered. And when others saw that, then, then they Christ mattered more even to them, too. So let your example inspire progress in adversity. That's part one. Part two is this. Let your adversity clarify your identity in Christ. So Paul tells us that his adversity has helped him think through the meaning of life. And it's here that he, he really settles the question, why am I here? What's my life about? What's my purpose? And for Paul, Jesus is the very definition of his life. Literally, literally, chapter 1, verse 21. For me, living, Christ, dying, gain. Living, Christ, dying, gain. I mean, that was Paul's heartbeat. You know, you did an echocardiogram on his heart. Living, Christ, dying, gain. Living, Christ, dying, gain. I mean, his trust, his love, his allegiance, his obedience, it's all fueled by Christ, accomplished for Christ. Jesus is my meaning. Jesus gives me direction. Jesus is my purpose. Death cannot take me from Jesus. Death is gain. How would you complete this sentence for me living is blank what is that what's your living you know and I know that it often gets filled with cheap substitutes money sexual pleasure power beauty entertainment politics but using the logic of this passage 
Notice what fills the second blank. Dying is. You fill the first with one of these substitutes. If you, if you say living is money, then, then by logic, then you fill the second blank with dying is being broke. You say living is sexual pleasure would be dying is having no more pleasure. What about power? The second blank would be dying is being powerless. What about saying living is beauty? You would have to conclude dying is losing beauty. If your life is collapsing because your career is collapsing, then your career is your life. If your life is collapsing because your assets are collapsing, that means you're, then that's your life. And Paul says there's, there's, there's one indestructible definition of life. Living is Christ. Christ is what makes life life. If I have Christ, I live regardless of where I am. Even death cannot destroy me because death didn't destroy Jesus. So, so what's the significance for Paul? Well, well, here it is. He can't plant churches. Paul says, nah, so what? Hasn't touched my life. I can't preach to a crowd, but I can preach to a Roman guard. God must want that guard in heaven. Otherwise, he wouldn't have chained me to him for the next six hours. I can't preach a six-hour sermon anywhere. But I'm going to preach a six-hour sermon to that guard. This is going to be fun. So, so this, is, this was Paul's life for two years. He preached to Roman guards who came and all to his rented place. And that's why Acts 28, 16, and 30 and 31 say, And when we came to Rome... Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That word without hindrance is, is uh, literally one word, unhindered. That's the last word in the book of Acts, unhindered unhindered. And during this time, Paul wrote at least four books in the New Testament. The books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And those books have been called the prison epistles because that's where Paul was when he wrote them. And, and I would argue that these two years were among Paul's most effective years because you know, he wrote, so if Paul had gone into a city and started a church, you're talking about a hundred people influenced, right? And uh, so you're, Paul gets to Rome and he's incarcerated and uh, others are hearing about his faithfulness to the gospel and they're inspired. So you're talking several hundreds, maybe thousands, right? That are inspired, okay? So you got hundreds in this scenario, thousand in this scenario, but then Paul writes scripture, okay? And we're talking about it today. It's the billions. Oh, the ways and the mysteries of God. Yeah. Paul's most effective years. When, when Christ is your life, even confinement to a small rented room can be amplified for global gospel progress. That's what God can do in adversity. Well, 
The third way is concerning our identity. Because, because Christ is my life, because I have Jesus, because he's going to keep me to the end, then I can, I can live for others. And that's, that's the third way we handle adversity to make much of Christ. Let your identity govern your commitment to others. In verses 22 and 23, Paul thinks out loud. You know, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he thinks, wow. What if I had a choice? What choice would I, what would I choose? To be with Christ and serve him here or to be with Christ in heaven? Verses 22 and 23. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I mean, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You know, Paul is pressed between these two passionate desires. Do I remain here in life and continue to preach and pastor and plant churches? Or can I just, can I just go sail off and be with Jesus in the heavenly realm? I'd really like to be with Jesus in heaven. That would be to my progress. But then Paul says, verse 24, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. And so then he says, convinced of this, I know. Because the Philippians were going, he's in Rome, guarded by the Praetorian. He's, he's under Caesar's nose. This can't, this can't be good. They were expecting the worst. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again, you see. So, so Paul's remaining is going to be for their progressing. And, and how, how, in what way? Well, the Philippians are going to enjoy progress from someone who has walked long in life. They they're going to they're still be interacting with someone who has conducted a long obedience in the same direction. They, they're they're going to enjoy progress from someone who knows how to suffer and keep their joy. They're going to enjoy progress from someone who can mentor and encourage. They're going to enjoy progress from someone who's a living example of pursuing Christ. And, and they're going to remember how Paul suffered when it's their time to suffer, you see. Now, there's something here for us, and I, I just want to encourage us here, church. Um, you know, there's an ever-increasing number of our congregation who are transitioning out of the workplace environment. You've given decades to your vocation, and that chapter is concluding. Our world calls it retirement. I'd prefer you think of it as redeployment. Yeah, because there's more work to do. And I see you, and we see you, and we see you stocking food supplies in the food pantry, and we see you visiting our members who are homebound, and we see you taking missions trips. We see you. We see you. And there's a temptation to check out. Please don't check out, okay? Now, you know, go take your trips. Go rest. Go play pickleball. Go get a nap, but please don't check out. 
these verses remind us of this question. How can my remaining in Christ be for your progressing in Christ? See, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Man, what a challenge. Oh God, may my life cause others to glory in Jesus. And isn't that why we're here as a church? Don't we exist that our, that our physical presence on earth and in this community at this time and at this place might give others a reason to glory in Jesus, who is our life and who makes death gain? I'm asking us to consider the possibilities that become open when we see adversity as an opportunity, not an obstacle. And when in our adversity, we see our prime identity grounded solely in Christ. And then having that, we have him and we live for the good of others so that they might know Christ. <laughs> oh, this is, just a, this is just a chunk of scripture that's saturated in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Rejoicing in Jesus and relying on Jesus and representing Jesus. And so I just want to close with a prayer. It's the prayer of St. Patrick, who was an evangelist to Ireland, who represented and relied on Jesus in the 5th century. Would you bow your heads? As I rise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Christ. All God's people said.